0: context impacts everything that we do, all right? It it impacts our relationships. Context even determines sometimes our visual perspective. I mean, it's just important in every area. Take a look at this Rubik's Cube. In that picture up there, you'll see that the center on the top is is brown, uh, and the center on the side there that's shaded appears to be orange. Would you all agree? Do you realize that they're both the same color? It is the shading and the shadowing and the colors that surround it that make a difference. If you take away all the other colors, I still didn't believe it, we put it through Photoshop and analyzed the colors in the picture and they are identical one to the other. You have to even understand the context for your visual perspective to come into right play. And sometimes when you're having a conversation, just a casual conversation, if you're not on the same page, if the context is different from one person to the other, it it can create a whole scenario that's just nothing more than a mess. This morning, I'm going to talk to you about the passage of Scripture that is probably most often misused, abused, and taken out of context of all the Scriptures. As a matter of fact, Matthew chapter 7 verse 1 is now the most quoted passage of scripture surpassing even John 316. Do you know which one it is? Reads like this. Do not judge or you too will be judged. Luke records the same story, the same words of Jesus in in, in this way. Do not judge or you will not be judged. Or you do not condemn and you will not be condemned. Forgive and you will be forgiven. Now, I realize that most of us do not like to have our faults and failures pointed out by others. That's an uncomfortable thing. We are often quick to respond hey, hey, don't judge me. As a matter of fact, this passage has become a favorite quote of non believers. And I always find it interesting how people will use what they don't believe to bolster a personal agenda or a perspective. And it's most often used to quiet somebody as if to say, don't be hypocritical, you have no right to judge me, and nobody wants to be thought of as being judgmental. And so the minute somebody says, hey, don't judge lest you be judged, and we always use the King James version of it, we back away because we think, oh, I don't want to be seen as judgmental. But is that really how Jesus used this passage? Author Paul Copan describes this fallacy in our all-too-common thinking. And he says this, We cannot glibly quote this without understanding what Jesus meant. When Jesus condemned judging, he wasn't at all implying that we should never make judgments about anyone. What Jesus condemns is a critical and judgmental spirit, an unholy sense of superiority. Those that tell you not to judge are often some of the most mean-spirited, judgmental souls you'll ever meet, too. Being non judgmental has become one of the great values of our culture, but our culture often uses this out of context. And I think some, even knowing it's out of context, use it inappropriately. Now, it's one thing to use something out of context when you don't understand the context, but it's an altogether different thing when you purposely twist and misuse scripture to your own ends. A sophisticated family in upper New England hired an acclaimed author to write their family history. When it was discovered that great-grandpa had been convicted of a life of crime and died in the electric chair, they were horrified. And so they hurriedly called the author and they said, is there any way that you can sort of put this in the right context? Not lie. Not lie but just put it in the right context so that the rest of the world who reads this history won't judge us harshly as a family. The author studied the dilemma for a while. He says, I, I think I can do this. And When he finished the manuscript, the family was thrilled beyond words because this is what he had written. Great-grandpa William occupied a chair of applied electronics in one of the leading government institutions. He was held to the post by the closest of ties, and his death came as a real shock. <laughs> now, I think some people take the scriptures and do the very same thing with them. They, they, they don't actually mistell it, but they use it in a way that is not intended for it to be used. So, what does this passage prohibit, and what does this passage allow? Well, sometimes people will look at this and say, hey, this means, uh, you know, uh, this ha- uh, has to do with judging somebody's soul. Well, it, it really doesn't, okay? Uh, now, we're already told in Scripture that's not our job, and I, for one, am really glad that, that God's in charge of that. I don't want to have to pass judgment on anybody's soul. I I, don't, I can't look into a person's heart and see what's there. You can't look into my heart. I can't look into your heart, but God can, and God is totally impartial. God is the one who's responsible for judging a person's soul. But, but this passage really doesn't have anything to do with that. Some people have also said that this has something to do with the courts of the land, that, that no government should have courts, that there shouldn't be trials, that nobody should be condemned. It has nothing to do with that either. In the Old Testament, there was, a, there was a courtroom kind of situation that relied very heavily on at least two to three witnesses. The Bible also indicates to us that God is the one who established governments in general. Even if the government that you're, you're under isn't the easiest or the best, it is still a government that helps protect its citizens, and that was the role of government, and so every governmental system has some kind of a court type of situation. If not, if there's no court crime, and there's no punishment for the crimes, then there is utter chaos, and if there's utter chaos, nobody is safe. And so, this does not speak to a a judicial system under any kind of government. What this verse does condemn is an attitude of smug superiority that looks down on another and passes judgment in some area of personal taste or opinion." I may not care for your taste in clothing styles. I may not like the way you raise your children. I may not appreciate your political philosophies. I may not like the way you spend your money. I may not agree with the hobbies in which you indulge your life. But that's okay. It doesn't, it's not important that I agree. My opinions don't really matter. My opinions aren't any better than your opinions. Your opinions aren't any better than my opinions. They're just that. They're opinions. But if I step over the line and say, hey, you need to do this with your kids, or you need to spend your money this way, then I have stepped over the line. And I'm guilty of this because I'm taking my views and and enforcing them upon you based on my opinions and tastes. Now, the church has long held up this standard. Perhaps you have heard it in these words before. In essentials, unity in non-essentials, liberty, and in all things, charity or love. Now, that goes all the way back to Rupertus Maldinius, who wrote that back in the 17th century, and it still stands true today. In those things that are essential, we stand united together. But in those things that are non-essentials, in those things that are matters of opinion, we exercise liberty. And your views are as valid as my views my views are as valid as your views. See how it works? That's the spirit that Jesus is, is talking about here. Let me suggest three reasons why you and I are not able to judge one another based on our opinions. Number one, we seldom, if ever, know all the facts, and we don't completely understand the person and his or her motive. Number two, we are seldom, if ever, completely impartial in our judgments. Only God is impartial. I always come at things with a certain partiality or a certain perspective or a certain bias. Number three, we are never good enough to judge any other individual on the basis of our goodness. The rabbis of Jesus' day often taught that there were six great works which brought a man credit in this world. Number one was his study. Number two, visiting the sick. Number three, hospitality. Number four, devotion in prayer. Number five, the education of children in the law of God. And number six was thinking the best of other people. That is a virtue that sometimes we overlook, thinking the best of other people. We are to give one another the benefit of the doubt. Jesus said it best when he put it into terms that we call today the golden rule, do unto others as you would have them do unto you, or think of others as you would have them think of you. Treat one another as you would like to be treated yourself. So think the best of others, cut them some slack, extend them some grace, and do what you know Jesus would want you to do. Okay, so far no disagreement. It's the other side of the coin that usually gets us into trouble. As Christians, we are supposed to evaluate and analyze one another in the body of Christ. Jesus said, by their fruit you will know them. In other words, by your actions, by your deeds, we will understand what's going on in your mind and heart. Now, That's my only way of uh, of analyzing who you are. You say you're a Christian. Well, do your actions speak of that? Uh, I say I'm a Christian. Do my actions speak of that? That's our only way. God has called us to be fruit inspectors, if you please. A person's actions will demonstrate what's on their mind. But the Bible also tells us that we are to help correct an erring brother. Matthew chapter 18, Jesus says this, if your brother sins against you, go and show him his fault just between the two of you. If he listens, you have won your brother over. But if he will not listen, take one or two others along so that in every matter it may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, then tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen to the church, treat him as you would a pagan or a tax collector. Jesus is talking here about the fact you do your best to correct Wrong behavior. And you do it privately, and then you do it with a cup. You, you do your best. And this requires that we are able to discern, to analyze, and to evaluate. Here's what we dare not miss. When it comes to moral issues, the matters of right and wrong, where God has already clearly stated that something is wrong, it is not judging someone to address that sin in another's life and warn him or her of the consequences of that sin. This text cannot be understood as a command to suspend our analytical faculties in relation to other people, or to turn a blind eye to their actions, or to refuse to discern the difference between truth and error, goodness and evil. And that's where our culture gets this wrong. To suggest otherwise is to take this out of context. So when you go to somebody and you say, brother, telling a lie is wrong. And he says, hey, don't judge me. He's using the Scripture out of context, not you. Later on in this passage, if you go down far enough, Jesus talks about don't give what is sacred to the pigs. Don't throw your pearls before swine. Don't, don't take that which is important and valuable and offer it to those who could care less about it. Uh, we just celebrated the Lord's Supper just a few minutes ago. That, that, is, that is something that believers treasure. But you don't offer that to the non-believing world because it's meaningless to the non-believing world. Don't take what is sacred and offer it to those who don't care. Pigs don't care about pearls. You can dress them up all you want, but they don't care about the value of the pearls. Uh, Another example would simply be, uh, it's like... Spending all your time talking to somebody who continues to reject you've told them the story of the gospel over and over and over again, and here is somebody genuinely seeking, but you ignore that person in order to keep giving to this person who continually rejects the words of truth. Jesus said, after a while, focus your attention on somebody who really cares. It's like continuing to offer food to an obese person while a starving person is sitting right beside him. When you care enough to risk rejection and ridicule to point out a Christian brother or a Christian sister's sinful behavior, that is not judging. When God has said it's wrong, we're not passing judgment. We're just trying to help somebody who is in error. But when you look down on someone without having all the facts or without understanding their motives, and you conclude that their views and opinions aren't as good as your own, then we are guilty of passing judgment. None of us have any right to look down on another.
1: We all know that this is a scripture that has been misinterpreted for years. And what I want to do is just kind of walk through some practical steps that we can all take to make this scripture really come alive. Follow with me again. Let's go back to Matthew chapter 7 and pick it up in verse 2. For in the same way that you judge others, you too will be judged with the same measure you use. It will be measured to you. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, when all the time there's a plank in your own eye? you hypocrite. First take the plank out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly and remove the speck from your brother's eye. Last week in our life group, we were listening to Andy Stanley message, and he made this point about parables that I had never thought of before. He said, anytime you hear a story or a parable, ask yourself, where am I in that parable? Put yourself right in the middle of it and say, where am I? And then second of all, if the parable Uh, goes deeper say where is God in the parable well in this particular story Jesus makes it painfully clear there's only one person in this story it's you it's me he says I want you to look at yourself and he says if you really want to live life at a deeper level here's the first thing you need to remember you need to examine yourself now here's why this is so important when I grew up Jesus was always so serious the Sunday school lessons, the sermons. I just couldn't imagine Jesus smiling or laughing. And maybe some of you have seen pictures now of artists who have actually tried to capture Jesus laughing and smiling. Now, here's why I know Jesus laughed and Jesus smiled. Look at this story again. Imagine all of you walking around this morning with a two-by-four coming out of your head. Now, I don't care what you say. That's funny, okay? Okay. And then imagine with this two-by-four, you're trying to find somebody's speck in their eye. And you can just imagine they're going, that is kind of crazy. And Jesus said, that's how ridiculous it is when you judge others without first examining yourself. And that's hard to do. I work in men's ministry. So i got to tell you an absolute truth about men. Men hate examinations. Can I have an amen? we don't like doctors, we don't like dentists, get out of my mouth, don't poke me, don't prod me, you know, I don't want examinations, we don't want to hear about examinations. Matter of fact, uh, a year ago, I was at a conference in Atlanta, I got up early, and I was uh, there at the breakfast buffet, and there are these two guys, and this guy, it was embarrassing, he had more bacon than you can possibly fit on, I mean, it was just grease pouring off the sides, and I'm like, oh my land, that's gross, so anyway, I can't it's kind of like a train wreck. I can't take my eyes off this guy. So anyway, he sits down with his buddy, and he said, uh, his buddy looks and said, boy, man, you sure like bacon. He goes, yeah, I just love bacon. He goes, you know, I went to the doctor the other day, and he said, I needed to cut back on bacon, red meat, and I need to lose at least 30 pounds. And his buddy said, so what are you going to do? He said, I'm going to get another doctor. <laughs> we can all relate to that. Because we don't want anybody to examine us and Jesus said, no, you examine yourself. You need to do a heart and a soul check to see where you're at. I love what Jeff said in the communion meditation about the power of the communion because it demonstrates the resurrection of Jesus Christ. But every Sunday when we gather for communion, it isn't just remembering what Christ has done for us. In 1 Corinthians 11:27, 27, he says this, examine yourself. So when you come to the table every week, It gives you an opportunity, it gives me an opportunity to say, man, have there been some conversations this week that I shouldn't have had? Are there some comments I made about some other folks? Are there some thoughts that I've had this week that are totally, totally against what Christ has taught? And if if so, I need to examine myself. All of us in this room are called to examine ourselves. I'm really excited. Tom is going to start next week a new sermon series on game changers, talking about individuals who experienced Jesus Christ at a deeper level. And when you start at the very beginning of the Gospels in John chapter 1, you'll get to this verse, verse 17, and it says this and I love it. It says Moses brought us what? Truth. But Jesus brings us grace and truth. Moses gives us the law. Jesus gives us grace and truth. That's the second thing I want you to think about today. He calls us to examine ourselves in this story, but then he calls us to live a life completely devoted to grace and truth. That in no way means Jesus is backing away from the truth. Seventy-eight times in the Gospels alone, Jesus uses the phrase truth. I speak truth to you. We live on absolute truth. We don't apologize that we live on truth. That's not where Christians get in trouble. You know where we get in trouble? It's that people don't see grace in our life. We don't practice grace. Here's what God's Word says in Proverbs 15.1. A gentle answer turns away wrath. And then listen to this powerful text, Ephesians chapter 4. If you've got your Bibles, I'd love for you to turn over here to Ephesians 4, starting in verse 1. As a prisoner for the Lord, then I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you receive. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. Do you notice what he's teaching the church? He said, listen, don't ever forget this life you've been called to. Are you worthy of that calling? And if so, here's what the world sees. Your humbleness your gentleness, your patience. Is that what the world really sees in Christians? There are two folks, if you talk to them, about Christians, give you an interesting perspective. The first, waitresses on Sunday. How many of you have been a waitress? Anybody raise your hand? Probably not many. You're, you're, you're not working today. So anyway, you got waitresses, and what is it about Sunday they don't like? Who comes in on Sunday? Yeah, it's us. Okay, so we roll in there, and we're so humble. We're so peaceful. What are we? You know, ask the waitress. Rude. Obnoxious. And here's a, I've had waitresses in classes that I've taught, and they'll say, it's one thing that the church folk are obnoxious, but they never leave a tip, or little, little bitty tips. Now think about that. The second one is talk to anybody who's ever refed a church basketball or volleyball game. You know what I'm saying? Ask referees, would you rather ref this league or a church league, they will ne- they'll never say a church league. Why? You've played in church leagues, haven't you? Have you ever seen what goes on in church leagues? See, we all know the importance of stepping out, not just in faith, but stepping out in grace. Philippians 4, 5 says, so let your gentleness be evident to all. I love this quote by Richard uh, Needmore. He says, people who are brutally honest get more satisfaction out of the brutality than the honesty. We hide behind that sometimes, don't we? Hey, I just gotta be up front. I just gotta, look, I'm a straight shooter. No, honestly, you're using that to be a jerk. I'm using that to be a jerk sometimes. What we really need to do is back off and say, God, I need you to help me with every conversation. I need people to see your grace coming through me. That I stand on truth, but man, I live out my days in grace. There's a book by Randy Alcron that I love. It's called The Grace and Truth Paradox. And I'd like you to listen carefully to this. It says, in the first century, Christ followers were recognized immediately. What gave them away? It wasn't their buildings, they had none. It wasn't their programs, they had none. It wasn't their political power, for they had none. It wasn't their slick publications, TV networks, bumper stickers, or celebrities. They had none. Then what was it? With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. With much grace was on them. They testified to the truth about Christ, and then they lived by grace. Truth was the food that they ate and the message that they spoke. And grace was the air that they breathed and the life that they lived. The world around them has never seen anything like it and still hasn't. Man, you take the the truth that we have foundationally, and then you live it out in a life of grace, lives will change. We can change this entire community if that's how we approached every day. Just completely saturated in the truth, but allowing God's spirit to move through us with peace and with grace. When I uh, was starting in youth ministry years ago, one of my heroes of the faith, his name was Mike Yaconelli, and he's, he's passed away. And Ecconelli wrote all kinds of idea books, and he's just an unbelievable speaker. And I remember I, I heard him back when I was, again, just beginning in youth ministry, and he shared this story that I'm going to share with you that had a tremendous impact on me. But at the very center of this story is a hippie. Now, some of you may not have any idea what a hippie is, what that even means, so I wanted you to, to understand at a deeper level. So I thought, what would it look like if Tim Thompson and Tom Ellsworth were hippies? And they would look like this. So here we So you kind of draw that in. Yeah. Well, if that doesn't help you lose your appetite, I don't know it will. Anyway, this happened back in the 60s in California very conservative church. And I I grew up in a very conservative church. Some of you probably did. Uh, You wore your Sunday best every week. And uh, that meant a clip on tie. That's why, if you've noticed when I preach, I don't ever, I hate, I don't like, I don't dislike them. I absolutely hate them. And I think that's being, I I was bitter as a young man. So anyway, you wear this clip on tie, you wear the patent shoes, you go in, everybody kind of looked the same and it was that kind of church, and church service is getting ready to start, so the deacons are at the door handing out the bulletins, and um, here here comes this hippie kind of out of the hills, blue jeans, tore, uh, no shoes, no socks, uh, raggy kind of a t-shirt, you know, crazy hair, and no eye contact. The deacons both looked the other way, and he walked right in the back, Came down, and of course, no one's making eye contact because they don't want him to sit by him. And he comes down to the front, and he can't find a seat, so he just sits on the floor in the front pew. And at the back of the church, every church has a patriarch, was the oldest deacon who started walking down the aisle. Now, half the church was thinking, Good, he needs to tell that guy he's being disrespectful, and hopefully he'll leave. Now, the other half of the church was thinking, I hope he doesn't embarrass that guy, but I hope he has him sit somewhere other than by me. And so he bends down and he whispers in his ear and he scoots over a little bit and he sits right by him. And they worship Jesus Christ together for the rest of the service. That's what I'm talking about. I'm talking about every day of your life saying, I know the truth but I want to live it out in grace. I want people to see that Jesus Christ has changed my life. He has saved my life so that I can demonstrate his love through grace. Truth and grace is the heart of the message. And the truth is some of you right now have never accepted Jesus Christ. You just put it off. You don't think you need it, but you desperately need it. Some of you just need to pray. Even though it's been Thanksgiving and it's been great, deep down you're hurting because of what's going on in your life.